Good morning again, everybody. Glad you're here, and a special welcome to those of you who are listening to our podcast or who are watching uh, online on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you are finding our messages. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and it's just a way that you can help us spread some of the teaching that we're doing here and reach a larger audience. We've been studying the very last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. We've made it through the first 16 chapters or the first 15 chapters, so today we'll look at chapter 16 of Revelation. It is the book that tells, it's kind of a microcosm, it's a summary of the whole Bible really. The Bible tells the story of where we came from, how we got here, and what God does about that, and how it's all going to end up. The Bible basically traces humanity from, you know, where we came from, to how we got in the mess that we're in, to how this is all going to wind up someday. Revelation captures all of that in a microcosm, in the beginning of The book of Revelation, the Apostle John, we find him in solitary confinement on an island, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to show you a vision, and I want you to write down what you see. Write down the things that were in the past, the things that are going on right now, and the things that are going to happen in the future. And so uh, up to this point, these last few chapters, what John is showing us, that God's showing John, is that time is going to end at some point as we know it. Life as we know it on this earth will be wrapped up at some point. There is an end to to that season of our history. And what he shows us is that it's going to culminate in one final epic showdown between God and Satan, between uh, good and evil. And so these skirmishes have been going on since before creation. God and Satan have been going back and forth. We've documented that thoroughly over the last few weeks. Uh, Now we see... Uh, this really coming, reaching a fever pitch. And last week when we ended things, if you remember, uh, John sees in heaven that uh, an angel comes out of the, the temple in heaven and he says, it is time for, God says, it is time for judgment to begin. And then smoke fills the temple. And the Bible tells us nobody could enter into the temple of heaven until after the judgment was finished. And what's that telling us? It tells us that what we're about to see next is judgment without any interference. No one is going to be able to talk God out of ultimately judging us. And it's not a topic that I look forward to talking about at all. I do not enjoy studying about God's judgment. I don't enjoy studying His wrath. But just because I don't enjoy it doesn't mean that I shouldn't think about it and we shouldn't talk about it. The Bible talks a lot about God's wrath and God's judgment. Jesus talks a lot about God's wrath and God's judgment, but when most of us come to church, that's not what we want to hear about. We want to hear about how loving God is, how gracious He is, all the miracles that He does. We want to hear a good message on self-improvement. We want a lot of humor. We want, and, and that's good too, um, but the truth of the matter is we need to look at this. The Bible tells us a lot about this. It's kind of like I, um, I was having trouble sleeping last night, so about 4 o'clock in the morning I finally gave up, and I found a sermon online and put my headphones in from 1979. So it's this old sermon uh, by a guy named Dr. George Wood, who was the former superintendent of the Assemblies of God. It was when he was a pastor in Costa Mesa. And um, he uses this illustration, and I thought it was really interesting. It, it stuck in my mind. He says this, Imagine you were one of the passengers boarding the Titanic, which is kind of dark and foreboding to begin with. They didn't know that this was a, they didn't know what they were getting into here. They're all getting on the Titanic. He says, now imagine you're a passenger boarding a cruise. How many of you have ever taken a cruise before? Isn't it just lovely? Yes, most of the time, right? As long as you take Dramamine, you're good. But he's, he's, imagine you're boarding a cruise, and when you walk onto the boat, you have, you get to choose one of two seminars before you check into your room. 
So imagine getting on the Titanic, and before you can go to your room, you have to pick one of two seminars. Seminar number one is entitled, How to Get the Most Out of a Week on a Cruise Ship. And the second seminar is, How to Survive a Collision with an Iceberg. Which of the two seminars do you think would be the more popular? Well, obviously, the one that talks about how to enjoy the most, you know, how to get the most out of your week on a cruise. Unless, of course, you know for a fact that an iceberg is 24 hours away. If you know that at some point this cruise ship is going to collide with an iceberg, you're going to go to that other seminar. And you're going to go to a seminar on how to survive the collision, and then you can get on with enjoying the rest of your cruise however you, however you want. And it's interesting, you know, the, the comparison that he makes, and I think it's analogous to a certain degree, is you know, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm a practicer of the disciplines of Christianity. I study the Bible, and I, I live according to, to what, how it tells me to live. The Bible tells me that there is a certain, let's call it a collision that's coming. It's certain. It's fixed. There is a, an iceberg, as it were. There is an end of my life that's going to come at some point. And at that collision, the next event that will happen is judgment. God, the judge, I will stand before him and he will judge me. And that judgment will determine either eternal reward or eternal punishment. The Bible says this is coming. And so it's not a waste of our time this morning to say, how do I prepare myself for that? Unless, of course, you'd just rather not think about it, then go to, hey, how can I get the most out of my life? and just enjoy life and, and, and drink it for all that I can um, and not prepare myself for that inevitable collision. The reality is that every man, woman, boy, and girl, when our life is done here on earth, will face judgment. And the Bible tells us how to prepare for that specific day. And if we're properly prepared, we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried. We can prepare ourselves. And so I want to look, chapter 16, it's filled, it is filled with God's wrath being poured out against the earth and the, you know, showing us that the earth is constantly in rebellion against God. So, so we've already seen six. We've already seen seven seals. We've seen seven trumpets, and in this chapter, we see seven bowls of God's judgment. So, um, the big idea I'm going to work with this morning. Uh, it's in your notes. I didn't give you a whole lot of because I'm teaching, not preaching through these these chapters. I'm not trying to make every chapter into a sermon. We're just going verse by verse and giving you some understanding and application of what's going on in the chapter. So, this is your one and only fill in the blank this morning. Here's what I, if I had to summarize chapter 16, um, here would be my best shot. Um, God's judgment against mankind and nature and all of its severity is deserved, it's just, and it's righteous. Now that's important to know on the front end because this is not a very comfortable chapter to read, okay? It's not a light, fluffy chapter. It's serious stuff. Um, But the thing is, if we don't ever talk about God's wrath, then you'll never see His grace, if we don't ever talk about God's wrath, then Jesus, you know, if God doesn't have a part of him, a big part of him that says, I hate sin and I can't let sin go unpunished, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. So you understand, we have to at least understand theologically the implications of God's wrath. Why? What's he angry about? And what's he going to do about that and when and how? And we see all of that in the Bible. If he really wanted to be cruel, he wouldn't tell us. He just let us wander into it and, and, and experience his wrath and all of its fury without ever having an opportunity to understand how we can prepare for that. So what we see in this chapter is that this type of judgment, it's deserved, it's just, 
and it's righteous. Okay? I say deserved because everybody's sinned. Everybody has sinned. And every time you sin against God, every sin carries God's wrath. And as sinners, we deserve God's wrath. As a rule breaker, you deserve punishments. If you speed, you deserve a ticket. If you steal from somebody, you deserve to go before a judge and have to, have to make that right, whether it's by remuneration or whether it's by punishment. We kind of get it. Most of us say we want justice. Yay, justice. I want the people who are, who are committing crimes to be called to justice. I want the people who are being done wrong to be made right. We, we want justice for everybody but ourselves. The reality is, what we have to see is that you and I, all of us, deserve some form of punishment for the sins and the crimes that we've committed against God. It's just because God would be contradicting himself if he left sin on punishment. In other words, if God never punishes sin, he's like that parent who knows that his kids are misbehaving, but just never punishes them. Have you ever been around a parent? Have you ever been around a kid and you're just like, I can tell their parents do not ever discipline them. I coach Little League. I see it there. Take my kid to the park. I see it there. Take him to the grocery store. Haven't you you ever been the one that's thinking that 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 was my kid? I used to think that until I had kids, and then they were my kids. (laughs) And then I'm kind of just like, you know what? Let him climb. He's not hurting anything right now because he's either going to climb that or climb my leg, and right now he needs to climb that. But it's just, and it's righteous because it does not come from a sinful place in God's heart. His ultimate goal is not to destroy people. He hates sin. And he must bring judgment against sin. So let's read a little bit of this and we'll talk a little bit about this morning. Uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we see the, 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 a voice, we hear a voice and we see the first bowl being poured out. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels. Let's pause for a second. Um, we're not given the identity of the voice from the temple, but can we do a little deductive reasoning here? Who do you think that voice might be? God, okay? Why do we think that's a good educated guess? Exactly. Okay, the last chapter, those of you that weren't here for the last chapter are at a disadvantage on that question. Last chapter we see everybody else from the temple kind of emptied out and then smoke came and the last thing that we read is that and no one else could enter the table, uh, temple until the judgments were done. So the only person that's inside there is God and so we, we was pretty sure that's God. And he says, go your ways, he's talking to the angels, and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So, the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. So, um, what I'm not going to do, and this might disappoint some of you, I'm not going to speculate a whole lot on these individual plagues, let's call them, and what they might be, and you know, what... you know, how it might look in the modern context. There's a lot of books written on people who speculate, and they'll say, this is exactly what form this is going to take. It's going to be cancer, or it's going to be this or that or the other thing. I, I don't want to waste your time in speculation. I'd rather take a level up and just look at the overall picture here. The first, the first uh, object of God's wrath is mankind. And everybody that's on the earth at this point, he says, are, you know, the worshiper, these are the, uh, you know, people who are worshiping the mark of the beast. The voice is most likely God's voice, um, and we need to notice that God and God alone is controlling the timing of these judgments. He's not, the enemy isn't pulling God's strings here. It's time for judgment because God said so. 
it's time for the first judgment to come first and go in the order because God says so. He gives directions to the angels and they follow his directions because he said so. Even though when you read through Revelation, it looks like at times the enemy is calling all the shots. I want you to understand that anytime the enemy is calling shots, he's only doing it because God lets him. The stuff that's going on in your life right now that the enemy is doing, don't think that he's more powerful than God is. God might be permitting it for a time, but God and God alone is always and will only ever be ultimately in control. And if he gives the enemy of a window to operate, which Revelation says he does, God will decide when he starts, when he finishes, and what the boundaries are. God is ultimately always in control, and we see it right here in Revelation chapter 13. The first bowl results in malignant painful sores breaking out on those who worshiped and are marked by the beast. Now, I'll give you a little hint. If you read through these bowls and you hear some of the language John uses, if, especially if you were Jewish, this would have sounded familiar to you. Can you think of any other time in history in the Bible where God poured out bowls or judgments against a group of people? Egypt. Okay, you remember way back in the Old Testament, Moses let my people go? Have you heard that story? Seen the veggie tale? Okay. Many of these plagues parallel things that God put out on the Egyptians. And what we see here is that the very first thing that God does is He afflicts every human being on the earth in this future time uh, with malignant, painful boils. It's clear that those boils don't cause people to die. It just causes unparalleled suffering. So, um, I unfortunately, my neighbor let some poison ivy plants get away, and I get it really, really, really bad. And um, like I've got, I think, 11 open sores on this hand, and I've got them all covered up, just in case any of you try and shake my hands. But the misery, it is, it is unreal. I mean, it's, it's in between my knuckles, it's in my fingerprints, it is just like, it's crazy. And so, you know, I'm constantly putting anything on there I can to just give me a little relief. I took two Benadryl this morning, and then I drank an energy drink just to try and combat it. I'm seeing stars and spots and everything else today, so um, I'm not high, uh, but uh, Revelation's really interesting to me right now. <laughs> I feel like there's a thunderstorm going on in here. And this is driving me nuts. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine the suffering of being afflicted with these open, malignant, painful boils. Um, but so we see the first thing is that God pours out judgment on human beings. Let's move on. Um, Bowls 2 and 3 with an explanation is verses 3 through 5. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. Okay, so this is salt water. Or I'm sorry, this is fresh water. I'm going to get him confused, so let's just call it the sea for now. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Okay, um, so this is salt water for sure. Um, there's some interesting, I think John's using a play on words here. Now, does it actually turn, does the water actually change form and become actual blood? Possibly, I don't know. Does it mean that the water is going to be contaminated and change color and it will appear to the eye like blood? Not sure. The clue that he gives us is he uses the word like. It will become like, so he's using a simile, the blood of a corpse. Now, here's what we know. Is the blood inside of a dead body capable of keeping that dead body alive? No. What we're learning here is that whatever God does to the seas, to the oceans, they will become as unable to sustain life within them as good blood inside of a dead man. 
In other words, and they spell it out for us, all the living creatures inside those bodies of water will die as a result of whatever this bowl being poured out on is. So I don't know. Um, it's not that hard. There's some pretty contaminated bodies of water already. We are well on our way to f- filling this one up. But again, I don't know exactly the form that it will take. What John wants us to see, though, is that this is pretty significant. You imagine the global impact of not being able to pull any living creature for any type of sustenance out of those particular bodies of water. Um, we're starting to, you're just going to see some of these things stacked up. Some of these plagues considered individual, you might think, well, I could endure that. Well, we're going to stack them all up together and see how miserable that it really is. Um, so, you know, the first bold judgment that we have there, or the second bold judgment we have is him pouring it out on all the living things to see. Verse four, then the third angel poured out a bowl on the rivers and springs and they became blood. So now he's going after the fresh water. And I heard the angel, this is interesting, I heard the angel who had authority over all the water speak up. In other words, there's, there's an angel, there's part of God's management team that has authority over the bodies of water. The enemy doesn't, God does, and one of his management team has authority over the bodies of water. And if there would be anybody who would have permission to push back against what God's trying to do, it would be this angel. This is the angel whose job it is to protect these things from being contaminated, to protect life for the human beings that God loved, to make sure that, that uh, we still have sustenance and that both fresh water and salt water can continue to produce what they're supposed to do to keep, to keep all the wheels moving forward. This angel speaks up, and rather than saying, hold up, God, think about this, think about what you're doing, you know what the angel says? The angel says, you are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments, since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you've given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. What do we see here? We see that the punishment fits the crime. We see God's form of justice, the punishment fits the crime. What he's saying is, the people on the earth have put to death my followers, they have rejected my name, they've blasphemed me, they have shed the blood of my children, and now I'm giving them blood to drink. The crime fits, or the punishment fits the crime. So really, really, really powerful imagery. The third angel um, uh, allows these freshwater sources to be contaminated. They no longer sustain life. Um, it's not explicitly mentioned here, but it could be assumed that all or most of the freshwater living creatures will also die. Again, you have to understand, guys, I don't like talking about this. I don't. And I'm not trying to belabor the point. I do want you to see, though, that there is coming a day when God will say enough is enough. We are not at that day as of this moment. There is still time for grace. There is still time for mercy. The gospel is still available. There is time for us to prepare for, uh, prepare ourselves in advance. But I want you to know that this day is coming. God will judge mankind. He will also judge nature. You see one of these bowls gets poured on people. These get poured into the sea. We'll see other bowls poured into the air. Everything that God created, he's in the process of destroying so he can remake it all over again. And so that's what's happening here. The angel provides us a commentary on the purpose of the judgments over the water. He says God's, uh, he reminds us, even in the midst of these judgments, like the big idea, God's actions are righteous, they're just, and they're holy. If God would just leave this type of evil go unpunished, he would not be just. If God just let the earth to continue to rebel against him and do whatever we want, and he never punished it, and he never pushed back against it, he never dealt with it, he would not be holy, he would not be just, he would not be righteous. He would be other than that. And so we cannot see God's righteousness and his grace and his mercy without also seeing his wrath and his judgment. 
The angel also reveals that these judgments are being levied against the followers of the beast directly responsible for the murder of the righteous God followers. They deserve it. Then we have something weird that happens. Verse 7. This is really strange. I don't have a lot to say about it. A voice from the altar saying, ah, altars don't usually talk. Apparently, in John's vision, they do. They say, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. It's odd, but it's another affirmation that God's judgments are true and they're just. Because here's the part that we like to ask God questions. Well, what about the really morally good people? What about devout followers of other religions, not Jesus? Is God going to judge them the same way that he does the, the pornographers and the abusers and the, the really, really, really bad people, the people from the opposite of my political party, the, you know, you know the Yankees fans, whatever he's going to do, right? When we say God's judgments are just, what it means is his punishments will fit the crimes of those who committed them. And the only ones who will escape this will be those who have already paid the penalty for their crimes. If you appear before God with an unpaid penalty, you will pay for it. If you bef- we'll all appear before God with penalties. But you have the opportunity to have those paid for in advance. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, let's move on. Verses 8 and 9. Bowl for an unrepentant humanity. Interesting stuff. Wouldn't you think that about this point, if God started pulling out, pouring out plagues, everybody would be like, Stop. I repent. No more. I give in. Let's see what happens because we see how the people who are being plagued react to the plagues. And again, um, those last two plagues on the water, familiar with uh, the Egyptians. We see that uh, back in the book of Exodus. Then the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues, they did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. So here God actually increases the heat of the sun, which doesn't result in death. It just results in extreme pain and suffering. So I don't know how to paint the picture. You have open blisters and festering wounds, and now you've got massive, uncontrollable sunburn on top of it. I mean, where do you get relief from that? And you can't go and get a nice cool drink of water because all the water sources are contaminated. So you start stacking some of these things on top of each other and you see the absolute misery, right? You'd be angry. I'd be angry. I'd be miserable. And then we see the reaction of those who are experiencing it. They don't turn to God in repentance. What do they do? They blaspheme God. They curse God. They They refuse to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They take the Lord's name in vain. What John sees is that the worst expression of God's wrath doesn't result in repentance of the wicked. Well, Pastor, why why in that day and age won't people turn to God in salvation? I'm not exactly sure, but here's my best guess. Because that expression of God is only wrath. They don't see any grace. They don't see mercy. They don't see love. That's what we can see now. But when the day of judgment comes, those parts of God will be hidden from those who are in need of judgment and punishment. And all they'll see is wrath. And what's interesting is these are not atheists. These are people who acknowledge God and they've heard the gospel because they heard it a chapter earlier. They've heard the gospel. It's not even that they deny he exists. They just decide he's a bad guy. And they back up their case by saying, well, all he does is rain down wrath. The beast is taking care of us, but God rains down wrath. It's so sad. It's so tragic. But that's where that's where history is headed. Um, let's trudge on. Bowl number five, verses 10 and 11. 
Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Because a lot of people think, well, what about the Antichrist or this world government that's causing all this? It looks like they're getting off unscathed. Not so. He hasn't forgotten. Here's what happens. He poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, again, back in uh, Exodus, there was a plague of darkness that went across the land for three days and nights. Okay? His subjects ground their teeth in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven. They're not cursing a God that doesn't exist. They're cursing the one true God. These are God believers, but not God followers. For their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. So this judgment is now directed towards the beast, the Antichrist, whether it's an actual individual or whether this refers to um, some type of global authority or global ruling group that has military backing them up and lots of power, um, the main ruling figure over the earth, I'm not exactly sure, um, but it's his, his group. Um, the judgment's now being poured out against them. Um, in other words, the beast was given power from Satan, and he was given permission from God to reign. Apparently, he looked like he was being uh, uninterfered with for a season. And now God's saying, nope, your rule is now over, and now you're going to receive the penalty and the punishment. It's just, the other thing here is I don't know. <laughs> the last chapter we see that the sun got really bright, and hot, or the last plague. Now it's pl- the earth is plunged in complete darkness. Don't know how it happens. Lots of conjecture out there. I've read some really fascinating and some really strange ideas about what people think uh, that might happen there. Uh, again, that's plenty of conjecture. You can dig into it on your own time. I just find it a waste of time for me. I don't need to know how it happens. It sounds pretty bad on its own. Um, we don't know. All John reveals to us is that the followers of the beast curse God and they gnaw on their lips because of the cumulative pain of their sores and their scorched skin. So I don't know why they'd be gnawing on their teeth because of darkness. Can't put it all together. Other, We just see that they're just in such intense global agony with no relief, with no light, with no water. Why? Because God's grace and mercy is hidden from them and they only see his righteousness and justice revealed in the form of deserved punishment. Let's trudge ahead. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies towards the west without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't don't know. Frogs. I I know back in Egypt there was the plagues of, I think, frogs and flies, right? So um, I know some people may have great insight on what it means. I don't have anything that I feel confident enough to spend your time on this morning. You saw evil spirits that looked like frogs. They weren't frogs. They looked like frogs. Leap from the mouths of the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the second beast known as the false prophet. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that, on that great judgment day. In other words, there are other judgment days, but they're talking about a day yet to come. This isn't even the great judgment day. This is judgment But now they're getting ready for the great judgment day, which we'll see in a few chapters. Um, What to do with this? Uh, Many, many, many theories, books written up on the Euphrates River and all the stuff that goes along with that. Uh, I will try and simplify it to what I can be a little more confident of. What's at least something that we can take from this and apply? John does see a cruel army here. He sees an army, and it is composed of various eastern nations. They're unnamed but they're coming from the east, and they're ruled by monarchies. He says the kings from the east. Now, whether that means that we'll actually see eastern kingdoms return to monarchies as a form of government, or whether it's just something that was, he only understood 
in terms of kings and kingdoms in that day, and it meant their leaders. I'm not exactly sure, but he sees eastern kingdoms uh, forming a coalition to march against Israel. And we're, we're also told these kings will be demonically motivated, although we're not exactly sure how, that, how it will be frog-like. I don't, I don't get it, but it, they'll be demonically motivated to do what they do. Um, the sixth plague involves a bowl poured out on the great river Euphrates. Have any of you ever seen the river Euphrates? It's a, it's a, it's a big, powerful river. Anybody know what part of region of the world it's in? Middle East, right, right. Um, it's, it's all through the Bible. People that uh, would have read this originally would have been familiar with Euphrates. It's also, uh, <laughs> it comes up in a lot of different historical accounts. To sum up briefly, um, the Euphrates was regarded as the northernmost border of the nation of Israel. And to dry up a river in the ancient days, practically speaking, it meant to take away the physical protection that the river affords you as a natural defense. In other words, if you if you have a kingdom built up and you have a river that's a big, huge river that people don't, you know, they can't cross, that your enemies can't cross, you don't have to build up a big wall there. You don't have to have a lot of guards over there. The river itself forms a natural border for you and you can, you can kind of protect other areas. So, uh, you know, people in Bible times would recognize, yeah, the Euphrates River, that's a really good natural boundary and would protect people from the east from moving to the west because they would not be able to ford that stream. However, um, if you go back in the 6th century, Cyrus, the Persian, invaded Babylon. Okay? Babylon at that time was believed to be impregnable. Uh, there, uh, you couldn't get into the town because of the walls, and so the walls kept people out. But basically, if you had a walled town, all the enemy would have to do is surround you, and he could dehydrate you because most people had to leave their walled towns to go get water. Here's what the Babylonian did. They dug a trench underneath their walls and diverted the Euphrates River to run right through it. So even if the enemy surrounded them, they couldn't get through the walls, and the people on the inside of the walls didn't have to come out because they'd have water. Well, Cyrus did something really smart. You know what he did? He built a dam upstream, and he diverted the Euphrates River, and it dried up that tunnel that was going underneath the walls, and that's the tunnel that he sent his troops through to conquer the Babylonians. So when the original readers would have read this passage, and they think about the great Euphrates River drying up, what they would be thinking is there's going to come a point where God is going to remove any borders that are currently keeping people out of the nation of Israel. Any natural borders, God's going to remove them in order that these kings from the east can, can march in. And so uh, I don't know exactly when, how, where that will happen, but it's happened historically, and that's the idea behind it. It's simply preparing a route for a final battle to take place. What we do know is that the demons are simply escalating the epic final showdown between Satan and God. Um, and, and we get a little bit more information. Uh, verse 15 says, Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me who will keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Now, he's kind of jumping right out of here and talking to you and me. And if I use language about the Titanic, he'd say, listen, an iceberg is coming. And so if you believe me, just be aware that it's coming and keep your clothes ready at all times so you won't be naked. What's he talking about? The, the New Testament always uses this image of uh, Jesus is going to return for, for his church and they will be spotless. And what he's saying to us is, mind your P's and Q's. Don't let unfinished business accumulate between you and God. Make sure you're always ready. Make sure you're always ready to meet Jesus. Live in such a way that you have nothing to hide. Turn to him in repentance. Ask him for forgiveness. Thirst and hunger for the things of righteousness and holiness so that when this day of judgment comes, and it is coming, you and I have nothing to be afraid of. We can look forward to judgment. 
We can look forward to standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We can look forward it will be a day of great reward and great joy and great pleasure. But he reminds us, he's like, it's going to come unexpectedly. Um, so, so we need to be on the ready. Verse 16, and demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. A lot to say about Armageddon, but I don't have time to get into that today. It's giving us, a, it's the only place in the Bible it's mentioned. It's giving us maybe a geographic clue. Um, I've been to the place. I've actually walked in the place. I have pictures of the place. Um, some of you have been there. Uh, the Valley of Armageddon, that's in Israel. Um, so it could very well be that geographic place. It could be a symbol standing for something else. All we know is that God has decided the date, the time, the place, the location, the combatants, the winner, the loser, and the outcome of the final battle. Nothing's going to be left up to fate. He already knows. And so he's giving us a lot of detail to see that. And then I'll close it up here. We'll finish up with this. The seventh one. The seventh angel poured out his bowl. And why is seven important? We talked about that in Revelation. What does seven represent biblically? Completion. That's why we have seven days in a week. We didn't do it in six days or eight days. God did it in seven days. So anytime you see seven, we want to know that there's nothing unfinished here. It's complete. So this judgment is going to be completed. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. So we've seen bowls poured out on people. We've seen them poured out on uh, the evil rulers. We've seen bowls poured out on the water. We've seen it poured out on a throne. Now we see bowls poured into the air. And a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple saying, it is finished. Have you ever heard those three words before in Scripture? It is finished. Who said it? Jesus. Okay. In what context? Where was he at that time? He was on the cross. Okay. So we hear this voice coming from the throne in the temple. This is the voice of God saying judgment is, this, act, this season of judgment is finished. Then, with the, then the thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed and a great earthquake struck. Isn't that interesting? What happened after Jesus said it is finished on the cross? Earthquake darkness tombs were opened and the saints came back to life and walked around we don't preach that one that often but it's interesting it happened it's recorded in matthew so, so there's some parallels here there's some significance to all of this it was the worst earthquake since people were placed on the earth the great city of babylon split into three sections and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble so uh wherever the city of babylon is is it present day iraq is it the capital city of wherever the antichrist empire will be I think that's, that's probably what we're talking about here. I don't, know that's, I don't know the actual location, but it's saying wherever the headquarters of the Antichrist were, that geographical region is split in three. But it also says, it says all, cities from all over the nations of the world are leveled. Buildings are reduced to rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. So he's playing on language we heard in chapter 15. This is the spooky stuff. Every island disappeared. All the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds, another translation says 100 pounds. Either way, they're big. Fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. So it's just total, complete destruction is what we're seeing. An earthquake that is not localized. It's like the whole earth is shaking. The whole earth is trembling. It affects everybody. Um, it's a really harsh chapter to read. And one of the questions that bubbled up in my own mind, worship team, you can come back, bubbled up in my own mind is, um, we talk about the judgment of God, and a question came up in my own mind is, well, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of God. I, uh, I'm a practicer of the disciplines of Christianity. Don't I also deserve those same kinds of punishment? I, I'm not any better than anybody else. So what right do I have as a Christian to expect that I won't also face this kind of judgment. Why am I not terrified for myself and my wife and my two boys when I read this? 
Um, one thing you can do is be so terrified you just dismiss it as allegory or you dismiss it as fiction. Why am I not so terrified? And then I, I started to think a little bit more um, on that. And, and I just wrote a few thoughts here. Um, doesn't a follower of Jesus like me also de- deserve judgment? Yes. Yes, I do. Shouldn't a disciple of Jesus also pay the price for sinning against the holy God? Yes. Yes, I should. But I want you to look at something. Jesus Christ has his, had his skin scorched, torn open, and laid bare. He had open wounds. He was stung by the whip, just like some of the people in this passage experienced. Jesus Christ was deprived of water to quench his thirst in a time of suffering, wasn't he? When he was on the cross, I thirst, and they didn't give him water. They gave him a stupefying drink, and he he didn't want to take it. He didn't want anything to dull the pain. He wanted to experience in his full period. He, in the midst of his suffering, was denied water. Jesus Christ hung in isolation on the cross. Jesus Christ shouted, it is finished, as Jerusalem was plunged into darkness and earthquakes shook tombs wide open. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. Jesus himself didn't deserve it. We sang about it earlier. He suffered, but he didn't deserve it. He took judgment. Why did he do it? He did it as a substitute. He stood in for me. Because everyone who's ever sinned deserves judgment. And Jesus came into this world to take judgment for us. He let his wounds, he let his body be afflicted with wounds. He, he, dealt, with, he dealt with dehydration. He dealt with isolation. He dealt with uh, darkness and he was, earthquakes and all those other kinds of things. He went through all of that. And, God, and when he died, we know that God accepted his payment for our penalties. We know that that, was, that that bill, we know God accepted the payment. How do you know that? Because he rose from the dead. That's the receipt of his payment. If God didn't accept his payment, Jesus would still be dead. God accepted his payment, and so he defeated death, which is the ultimate blow the enemy could ever give to anybody. He defeated it. And then Jesus went to heaven. And he sent us another counselor called the Holy Spirit in Greek, parakletos, paraklete, the one who walks beside as our advocate. The best modern translation is he is our attorney. And here's what he does for people like Phil. There will be a day where I will stand before God and I think about the Holy Spirit being my attorney and God sitting on the seat as the judge. And I think about the Holy Spirit saying saying to the judge, saying, Judge, I present to you, I present to you Phil Nauer. He is guilty. He sinned. He sinned many times. And judge, you know and I know that he deserves to pay the penalty. He deserves death. And we want justice for him. And then Jesus stands and he says, I will present payment for him. I have taken his punishment. And I imagine the Holy Spirit saying to the judge, now that he has paid in full for Phil's sins, I demand justice. Certainly you wouldn't demand two payments for one person's sin. And since his account is completely clear, I demand justice for him. I demand freedom for him. I I demand eternal life for him. I demand uh, peace and joy and love for him. And you see, yes, we all deserve judgment. But the beauty and the grace and mercy is this, that Jesus already stepped in and took God's wrath on your behalf. He took all of it. 
he stepped in and took the bowls and the trumpets and the seals on himself so that by putting your faith in him, God accepts you based on Jesus' resume and on Jesus' sake, not on your resume or on your sake. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That's what I'm appealing to you to consider this morning. Consider the fact that Jesus stepped in and took your place. So my two questions are this. Number one, do you need to put your faith in Jesus today? Do you need to prepare yourself for inevitable judgment this morning by forming a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? My second question with this is, if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, does your life reflect the joy of the fact that you have been completely and totally forgiven from all of your sins? Do you live in a way that is transformed and changed for those who don't have a Savior with Jesus Christ? Have you, since that day when you committed Jesus, have you decided to return to a life of sin? Friend, you're putting yourself in a really tough place. Can I encourage you to come back to Christ? To repent? To ask Him to forgive your sins? To prepare your heart? He's ready and He's waiting. Let me pray for you this morning. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me as the worship team begins to play softly? I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I know some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor, are you just trying to scare people into into Jesus? No, of course not. At the same time, I, I understand that there is a fear in all of us of who God is. It's a reverent fear. But there's part of that healthy fear because I believe He is who He says that He is. And that fear drives me to make more wise decisions with my life. And if you heard what I said this morning, you believe that it's true. If you believe that Revelation 16 is not just the musings of a deranged uh, criminal, but that they're actually the revelation of God preserved so that you can hear it today. If you believe that it's true, there might be a part in your heart that's unsettled when you hear that. And that's the Holy Spirit saying, "Come, come to my Father. Lay your sins before Him. Accept the the payment of Jesus Christ. Serve Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Where He goes, you go. Where He stays, you stay. Where you move, He moves. Love the people that He loves. Serve the people that He serves. Today, there's still time for grace and mercy and repentance. And if you want to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, it's just as simple as ABC. Admit, believe, and choose. Admit that you're a sinner and you've fallen short of the standard that Jesus set for us. Be believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lived a sinless life, who died a death on the cross in your place as your substitute and who rose from the dead victorious. And see, choose Him to be your Lord. You see, you can't just accept His sacrifice without bowing your knee to His Lordship. That means you and I give up control of our life. We stop sitting on the throne of our own life and invite Jesus to sit in its place. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer. You can pray this right where you're at. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in you. I believe you're God's son. You lived a sinless life. You died on the cross. And I believe you rose again and you're alive today. I accept forgiveness for my sins. Thank you for paying that price, Jesus. And I choose you to be my Lord. I'm officially renouncing control of my life. I'm no longer going to be a king. I'm going to be a servant. I need you to be my king. 
but anybody who loves me that much, I can trust to tell me what to do. I welcome you into my life. I look forward to becoming more like you, Jesus, day by day by day. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray. Amen.